God, this is our surrender. (laughs) We're bringing this all to you. Everything we have, we lay it down at your feet. We come to you this morning with our faults, with our glories, with, with our crowns. And we're laying it all down to you, giving it to you. Because that's when we see you work, is when we truly give ourselves to you. The things that we do, I pray that we just see you through it, whether it's at work, whether it's at school, no matter where we're at, whether we're retired and just stay at home, that we find that time that we can sit there and see you that we can try to understand you. We pray this all as Eric will come up on stage. We pray this all in Jesus' name. All God's people said. What a beautiful song. I can't think of a more fitting song than for every Sunday, let alone this Sunday, man, making room for Jesus. And I just, I challenge you, worship it has much theology as anything else we have and preaching and everything else. And so I challenge you just to allow those words to marry in your heart, like, are you allowing that to happen today? Are you allowing for God to speak to you? Are you making room that maybe God might want to stir in your heart or bring a fresh perspective to his word, to your life, to something that maybe you didn't come into this room thinking you are going to deal with it, you were going to bring to the forefront. And so I encourage you in that. I also encourage you to get past my allergies. If I hack up here and stuff, just call it the name of the Holy Spirit or something like that. So if I blow my nose, uh, we're going to say that's a blessing from the Lord coming out right there or something like that, okay? So I uh, try the best I can, but we're, we're excited. Uh, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 3. Uh, if you haven't been there, uh, well, you can start opening your Bibles there. We'll get there. Uh, if you're a guest, thank you so much for coming. Hey, glad to have you guys, whether in person or online. Uh, we are three weeks into our Jonah series. You can go back and listen to the other weeks if you enjoy today. If not, pretend like you do at the end of service regardless. It makes me feel better about myself. Um, so, But we are glad that you are here. Uh, I, I want to kick off with a question. Uh, this is not to be a deep theological life, you know, whatever, deep question. It's just a fun thing to discuss with the people you're around, kind of get some engaging going. I see some tired faces, so uh, look at the person next to you and say, wake up real quick. Just give them like a good shake in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, wake up. Like, just kind of bring them back to life if you would do that. Um, you have my permission in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to slap them back awake anytime during service they fall asleep. That is not God's will for today. I feel confident about that. Jim Mifflin, be careful, right? So um, here's a question I want you With the people you're around, would you take a second and answer this question? What's the biggest change you've ever made in life? Oh, that's a big question. Maybe What's the biggest change you've ever made in life? Maybe it could be when you went to college. Maybe it could be a haircut. I don't know. If that's your biggest change in life, then we have other things we need to talk about. But take a second with the person you're next to. You guys online, if you can type that in, take a second, answer that question. What's the biggest change you would say you've ever made in life?
The conversation keeps going. I'm thinking maybe we need to do some counseling later after church for some of you guys. You haven't recovered from whatever that thing is. If they're, they're sitting over in the children's wing, if that's your answer, and that's, we need, maybe need to talk about that too. I don't know. Uh, I have all sorts of things that seriously, maybe some less serious things for me that were life-changing for me, I thought, and whatnot. I remember when I first came here, if you don't remember me, uh, I used to buzz my head all the time, get a buzz haircut. I'd had that for about five, six years. I remember one day I sat down with Emily and I said, you know, I'm thinking about growing my hair back out. And she kind of says, okay, cool, whatever. I said, well, no, what, what do you think? I was like, do you, do you like, my, like my hair buzz? She goes, but you don't want to hear that from your wife, right? Like you're trying to think, do I look good? And she kind of shrugs her shoulder. No, no, hold on a second. What do you think of my haircut? She goes, I don't like it. I said, I've been doing it for five years. Like, how come you've let me do it? She said, because you cut it yourself and you've saved us so much money. I said, I don't care. I want to be hot. And so I went and so I grew my hair out. Uh, yeah, uh, ego, whatever it is right there, that, that was one maybe. And I started doing that again, and that's a, a funny thing we had. Or maybe uh, not long ago, last year, uh, I realized I was, uh, uh, the world was getting much smaller around me, or I was getting larger. I couldn't tell what was going on, and so I decided I'm going to try to lose some weight, and was challenged by some friends to lose weight. And so in the span of about three months, I lost 30 pounds, and I was like, man, it was, it was great, life change, all that sort of stuff. And you know what? Uh, it wasn't hard to find 15 of it back. <laughs> like, it didn't go very far, um, you know? Uh, it's funny, we talk about these things that that change us. But, but the question I want to ask really is like, what makes something life-changing? Like, like losing weight was good and all that sort of stuff, but I'm real quickly enjoying cheeseburgers and fries and all the good stuff I can eat again. Like what makes something life-changing? I mean, for it to be life-changing, there, there has to be a sense of permanency to it, like something that lasts for a lifetime, right? Losing weight for six months to gain it all back six months later is not a life-changing situation. I bring it up because the Bible calls us to make uh, calls us to life-changing repentance in our relationship with God. But, but the reality that I think we see with a lot of us and other people is this, is that we, we often just elicit temporary remorse is what it is. That's all it becomes. We feel bad about our circumstances, feel bad about what we're doing, and we show remorse, and we say we want to quit, and eventually we find ourselves saying, oh, there it is again, and find ourselves right back into an old rut. <clears throat> I bring that up because we've been going through Jonah, and if you don't know, Jonah events, just to recap, Jonah has been running from the Lord. Chapter 1, God comes and tells Jonah, hey, listen, I have a message, I have a mission for you. And Jonah says, cool, I'm out. And runs the other direction and tries to do everything he can not to pursue the Lord. And the Lord is going to, by, by one way or another, going to get Jonah to where he wants to get him. And last week we pick up the story where Jonah gets swallowed not by a whale, it might be, but it says a giant fish. And inside the belly of this giant fish, he finally calls out to the Lord. But you read his whole thing, well, one thing that sticks out is this feeling of repentance, like, I've messed up. God, I'm sorry for what I've done. Instead, he just shows remorse for his circumstances, situation, just wants out. Can you identify with that at times? Like, man, I sometimes don't really want to quit what I'm doing. I just want to quit the situation I'm in. And so he cries out to God, and God in his mercy, and in infinite mercy, makes no sense. You end with chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, the Lord commanded the fish to vomit Jonah on dry land, and Jonah picks back up. Nothing like being vomited out by a fish. I mean, that's the testament I want to tell my kids someday. And so we pick up there and we look at it. We see Jonah's not remorseful. Uh, he's remorseful, but he's not repentant. And today we're going to kind of look at chapter 3 and look at some, a different group of people <coughs> that come into the picture and answer the question for us. Like, how do we know if we're repentant and not just remorseful? There's a difference in the two. How can we tell? Like, you can sound repentant, remorse, or sound repentant, but not be repentant, Right? 
You can sound like it. It's like people can sound married and play all the marriage sort of stuff and cohabitate together at the end of the day like they're not married. They can pretend they're husband and wife, but they're not, right? It's the same thing we can do this. And so it's important we come distinguish the characteristics of repentance versus the actual act of repentance. Because I think a lot of times what we elicit is not true repentance. Their characteristics is really just remorse. In other words, it's this. Can you tell the difference between the fruit of repentance versus the root of repentance? And so we're going to look at that today. And the big idea you're going to see as we unpack chapter 3 is this, is that repentance is a drastic turn in life. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to read all of Jonah chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible but have a friend next to you, ask if you can share. If you don't have a friend next to you, just creep on them and look over their shoulder and read the Bible with them right there, okay? We're going to get friendly here. So Jonah chapter 3. <clears throat> it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. He says, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. So Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, like a three-day walk to get through. And Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God and they proclaimed, uh, proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal or herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. In verse 10 it says, So God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. What an interesting thing, and what a weird thing at the same time. Culturally, if we are not connected to what's going on, it's kind of confusing. What's a dude getting naked, getting in a sackcloth, and suddenly sitting in ashes? It's not what I do on a Tuesday night. I don't know what's going on here. So let's go and unpack just some of this before we really take some application from it. You start out in verse 1, which is so interesting. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Again, if you don't know, Jonah is a prophet of God. In other words, prophecy is, is a word from the Lord for another group of people. It starts out with the very thing, the word of the Lord came. That, that is a prophecy. It's a word God has for someone else. And the person who has chosen to deliver it, which it says here is Jonah, is the prophet. A lot of times, again, I say this every week, but it's important you get through your head. We think prophecy is some sort of Armageddon, end times, you need to get Bruce Willis in the video and send all these people up and destroy, like, right? That's what we think it is. It's not that. It's a word from the Lord. Some of that stuff falls under that umbrella, but that's not what it is. And so word of the Lord came to Jonah, and I love it, says, a second time. Isn't it great to know we worship a God of second chances? Like, I don't know about you, but I've messed up a lot of my first chances. And God not only gives me second and third and fourth and fifth, but God keeps coming to me because his faithfulness, even though I'm not. And so he comes to him again. And he says in verse 3, I love, he says, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. If you don't know, this would have been very familiar because it's the exact thing he said in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. It's the exact same calling. He repeats it like, hey, listen, I've been here before. Get back up and do what I asked you to do. He's restoring him back to his calling. And so Jonah says in verse 3, he gets up and he goes to Nineveh. If you don't know, Jonah is in a place called Joppa, and he's going to Nineveh. It's some 500 miles away. 
At this time, they didn't have sweet minivans like I have or, or Priuses that can take you there. And so instead, you're going by foot. This would have been a month journey at least. Imagine that. Being vomited up by a fish, God tells you, and you're suddenly traveling by foot. What's going through your mind this whole time the way down? Processing everything that's going on. Alone with his thoughts, thinking about everything going on. And you'll come to learn, you think that'd be a great time for him to reflect and go, maybe I made a mistake, but you'll see next week that he never comes to that conclusion. He kind of just falls back down to his self-pity, his self-doubt, and all this sort of stuff. And he goes to this place that says, the great city of Nineveh. It's kind of a great exaggeration you have here. He says, it's this great city that's a three-day journey just to get through. Now, Nineveh at this time was a huge city. I mean, as a matter of fact, we see later in chapter 4, God says there's some 120,000 people in this city alone. Other scholars believe there's closer to three to hundred to 600,000 people in Nineveh. Just to get through Nineveh, and Nineveh was about, uh, in circumference, about an eight-mile-wide wall they had that went all the way around. I mean, it was absolutely majestic and huge place to go to. You could have missed it, okay? It's not like, oh, I just missed Nineveh. It's not like going to small podunk Oklahoma and you blink and it's gone. I mean, this thing had, I kid you not, a 100-foot wall that was 50-foot wide that they would have chariot races on top all around this thing. Tell me the guys did not put that together right there. You know what I'm talking about? And so they have this whole thing, and yet, I don't care how big it is, it would not have taken him three days to get through. Again, this is a great exaggeration. But why is he exaggerating here? Because he's talking about how great, how many people, like the multitude, how much work this can get through. And what happens in verse 4? Jonah set out when? On the first day of his walk into the city, he proclaims a message, and people immediately start responding. He, he barely gets his foot in the door, says what he has to say, and people are immediately starting to repent and start to change. Like, like God has laid a groundwork that he can't even begin to expect. Like this is one of the greatest revivals that ever has taken place in all of history that we could probably count for. He goes in. The point is he doesn't get far before they respond. And he gets in and he preached the best sermon ever, right? Look at verse 4. What does he say? He says, hey, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. That, that is the worst sermon ever. If I get up and like, hey, guys, listen, you're all going to hell. And I just walk off. You'd be like, man, Eric really brought the message today. Like, I never gave any hope. I never gave any reason. I never did anything. Like, it is the worst message. After service, elders will be sitting like, Eric, I think you kind of messed up on that one. You might want to clear it up. He, he does not care. He is just like, I just want these people to be die. I want to be gone. He just, he still hates them. It is the worst message ever. I love what the uh, New American Commentary uh, says. It says, if these words were the sum total of the message of Jonah, that there's no reason for the destruction that was given. Nor was the manner for destruction described. There was not even an explicit call to repentance in this message. It's like seven words long. Even that, he never once mentions the name of God. Can you imagine that? Doesn't even do it. As a matter of fact, if you look at this interesting thing, look at verse 3. Who, who at the end of the, his name right there? It says, Jonah got up, went to Nineveh, according to who? The Lord's command. If you don't remember what I said a few weeks back, any time you see in Scripture where the word Lord is all capitalized, it's not just a generic Lord name. It's the divine name of God. Yahweh is what it's talking about in the original Hebrew. It's his personal name. Notice the very next thing. The next time we see the Lord's name in verse 5. It says, And the people of Nineveh believed in who? What does it say? Does it say the Lord? It says God. Like, like they're, they're not even completely understanding who this God Jonah's talking about. Why? Because Jonah doesn't even preach about his God. He, he leaves it generic. 
that they just believe in Jonah's God. I don't know who he is, but whoever Jonah's God is must be real. It's sad. He doesn't give them any hope, any repentance, and yet what? They immediately respond. So much so you see in verse 5, word gets to the king. What happened? The king shows the most humility, the utmost humility and remorse. <coughs> it says he heard it, and what happens? I mean, imagine the message getting to the king. Hey, what did he say? He said, nah, the, the place is going to be demolished. Okay. And, and how's his response? He, he gets up, and he just repents. He begins to humble himself. As a matter of fact, the New American Commentary says this. It says the radical nature of rewind that. The radical nature of his repentance is stressed by the literary structure of the clause. He rose from his throne. He took off his royal robe. He covered himself with sackcloth. He sat down in ashes. He shows an immense remorse and humility. Sackcloth was something peasants and the slaves would wear back in this time. It's showing, listen, I don't even deserve this. To sit in ashes just to sit and mourn, to grieve for what you've done. This king is doing this. And what's even more interesting about it is it's not just the king that's repenting. This is what makes the story so comical. The cows repent. I kid you not, McDonald's cows. I mean, look at what it says. He says in verse 7, he says, But order the king and his nobles, no person or what? Animal, herd or flock, is to drink water. Verse 8 says the animals must be covered with sackcloth. You're having the chickens like, these chickens better repent. That pig better repent. That cow better repent. Everybody's repenting here. It's like going to your house and it's you, your cat, your dog, the goldfish. Everyone got saved. This is what's going on here. Do you see the revival going on? Can you imagine going here, everyone in this place repenting, going home and witnessing to Fluffy Fluff the dog, and he's getting saved too. Everybody's getting saved by this. Like, God is working here. God, God is working here. The question that I asked and I had to process is, why would they possibly respond to this terrible message? Like, why? This makes no sense, right? Some scholars like Chuck Missler, uh, if you ever heard of him, says there might be external factors or circumstances that might be causing these people to be ready to hear this response. Like, like take understanding, during the same time period, they had two different plagues that had just ravished their area. In 765 and 759 BC, you had these plagues that just completely upended their entire people. You had a total eclipse of the sun that occurred on June 15th, 763, that many of them would believe was some sign of divine anger or something was going on. They had all these external signs. Even more so, here's the interesting thing going on. These people worship many gods, but one of the gods, their main worship of God, was a god called Dagon. And Dagon was also known as the fish god. Now, now back up the story. Jonah's been walking for a month, and he has an interesting story. That this, what, what is it again? He just got vomited up by something. What was it? The fish and on top of that, many scholars actually believe as well that having been in a fish for three days, the acids and stuff from the stomach of the fish would actually have bleached his skin white. Not only would his word have been a verbal thing, but they'd have seen by his own complexion, there's something different about this guy right here. Maybe there's something different. This whole being swallowed by a fish thing is suddenly giving credence to maybe what's going on here. I mean, maybe God has orchestrated stuff. Now listen, I can sit here just as I could have done with the fish and explained it off, but the reality is that's not the point. It's trying to make sense and rationalize and make, make sense of all this and scientifically try to explain it. The point is to come say is, listen, we worship a sovereign God that works behind the scenes when we don't even understand. Little did Jonah know when he showed up, people's heart would be ready and prepared that it just took seven horrible words, the worst message ever preached, for lives to be saved. God works in extraordinary ways. God did it. 
And I love what happens. They do this, and they do all sorts of stuff. In verse 10, God saw their actions, that they turned from their evil ways, and what? God relented. God turned from the disaster. He, he changed his mind about what he was going to do to them. Have, have you ever thought about that, that you have the ability to change God's mind? Like, maybe your God's not big enough for that in your mind. Like, man, God doesn't, God knows everything. God, like, listen. But God's saying, listen, your life, this is where it's heading. This is my plan for you. But listen, if you would just repent, if you would just change, if you would do this, I'll relent too. It's amazing to think that we have a God that we can dialogue with and that we can even have the ability to change his mind by the course of our actions and what we do. But the question that we came to answer is this, is like, what, what is this deal with repentance? How do we know? Like, when does remorse become repentance? Like, do you know the difference? And so let me unpack some characteristics of repentance that we see that maybe we, we confuse with it's really just remorse. Like the first thing in verse 5, you see it says, when they heard the message, what happened? The people of Nineveh believed in God. You see, one of the characteristics you see of repentance is, is this aspect of immediate response without hesitation. When you hear the truth, you know there's something wrong. You're like, listen, I need to do something about this. Something has to change. And listen, that's a great characteristic. That's a fruit of repentance. But the reality is a response doesn't mean anything sometimes, does it? Just because we respond doesn't mean things actually change. How often we felt bad, how often have we said, you know what, I, I need to do something right now. We walk the aisle and nothing happens. It was always funny to me to go to Falls Creek and the kids that I love them to death, but they're the aisle walkers, man. Every time they have a rotation, man, they're walking down the front. Like, I don't know, maybe the air might be better down there or something. Like, they go up over and over and over again. I never forget my first year at Falls Creek going and a kid walked the aisle Tuesday and got saved. And then Friday, the same kid walked and got saved again. And I went and talked to him. I said, I thought you got saved on Tuesday. He's like, yeah, but you don't know what I did. I'm like, it's been three days. Like, what have you done at Falls Creek in three days to lose your salvation? You can't lose. Eric, you don't understand. And I had to begin to unpack. See, sometimes we can show immediate response or remorse without hesitation, but a response doesn't mean it's a change. It's a characteristic. It might be a fruit, but again, it's not the actual act of repentance. Maybe another characteristic you see in verse 6, it says, When the word reached the king, he got up from the throne, he took off his robe, he put on the sackcloth, he did all these things. You see a characteristic of true humility and remorse. Sometimes we can feel bad about our sin, we can feel bad about the thing we're doing, we feel remorse for it, but listen, even in that, that doesn't mean that's repentance. Like, understand, feelings don't last, Right? My feelings, my guilt, my shame, they don't last. My humility doesn't last. And even honestly, feelings by their very nature are prone to change. Give it a second, right? I mean, it happens. I think of just with my own kids sitting around and we play games together. And we're starting to teach my oldest daughter how to play a game called Nerts. And we're playing this card game. And mommy and daddy don't understand the concept of mercy. And so we're just whooping up on her. I mean, just showing unrelenting force. And, just, and she's sitting there just humble. I'm awful at this and I hate this and I'm never going to be good. And, and so we make it easy to say, well, we'll soften it up and change the rules a little bit for you. And in a split second, she starts winning. She's like, you guys are terrible. I'm like, oh, man, I'm whooping. I'm just talking trash. It's like, what happened? Two seconds ago, you were all sad about it. Or Hallie, when we played Candyland, and she's in last, and then suddenly she draws a card, and she gets in first. Oh, man, I, there, there is no good winners in our household. They learn it from their mother. Um, so that's how it goes. She's not here. I can say it. Here's the reality. Like, listen, those feelings don't last. Have you ever felt guilty about something? Felt remorse? Man, I hate how I am. I hate how I do this. Or I wish I could stop. And then just over dinner, suddenly, you kind of move on. You, you kind of just, that feeling came and went. I don't feel bad about it anymore, or as bad as I did. 
See, true humility and remorse are, are again, characteristics, but they're not the act of repentance. And maybe verse 7, you see another thing where the king gets up and he actually makes a proclamation. Maybe it's just a characteristic of public confession of sins. The king is getting up when he's done this. He's proclaiming his sin and his mistakes to all the people. He's, he's confessing what he's done wrong. And don't mistake, my confession of sins is such a powerful thing. James encourages to do it so you will be healed. Confess your sins to one another, he says, so that you will be healed. <coughs> Make no mistake, confession serves two roles in our lives. It, it helps deliver us. When we confess, suddenly we quit hiding in the shame and guilt of what we're dealing with. I always say that you'll never experience deliverance until your secrets are no longer secrets anymore. Until you come to a point and say, listen, I'm not going to hide anymore. Until we get, tell people that 10% that we don't want them to know about, listen, you're still always going to be hiding something. And there needs to be an aspect of true confession. Confession delivers us, but it also delivers others. Like his confession is trying to get other people to be on it. I love when you see true repentance, it's communal. You want to see other people free and other people come out of their sin. You want to tell other people what's going on. Why? Because free captives want to free other captives. You don't want to hoard it to yourself. You want everyone to know, hey, listen, I got out of this. You can get it out too. This is how you do it. You tell people. You don't believe me? Go read texts like Psalms 51 where David is proclaiming his confession to God after he's had an affair with Bathsheba. One of my favorite texts in all scripture. He says, God, restore me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore these bones that you've crushed. Like, just restore me back to what I once was. Restore me back to who you want me to be. But then he says, and then I'll go teach others your ways. I'll help others who are struggling with the same thing come out of their stuff. Every time you see a New Testament where Jesus comes and delivers someone, what do they immediately do? They want to go tell their family and friends and everyone about it. I met the Messiah. Something's changed. Like, like don't mistake, confession is such a powerful part of repentance, but it's not repentance. I understand this, like confession without repentance leads to apathy. We can get to the point where we have no problem telling people, yeah, I struggle with this, I, can say, I struggle with this, but we really don't truly repent. You just, everyone knows my dirty laundry now, and I'm going to do it anyways. I'm going to keep doing it. That's not it. Maybe, maybe it's a desire for God. I love at the very end of verse 7, look what it says. Sorry, I lost my spot. Oh, verse 8, sorry. It says, For them are people and animals and be covered with sackcloth and what? And everyone must call it earnestly to God. Maybe it's an earnest desire for God. Reality is that's a characteristic of repentance, but it's not repentance. Well, I understand this. You can desire things that are mutually opposed to one another. Let me say it like this. You can desire two things that completely contradict one another. Well, let me say it like this. When I was running and stuff, I enjoyed running, and a way to reward myself is I'd go to make Brahms and get ice cream to reward myself later that night because I, I earned it. Those are mutually exclusive things, I'm trying to lose weight. Just yesterday, I got invited to go ride the uh, Chickasha Rock Creek Festival. I rode 10 miles. You know how I rewarded myself? With a food truck, giant plate of nachos with brisket and barbecue and cheese and followed up with mini donuts. I guarantee you I ate more than I rode off. I desire both things. I desire to lose weight, but I desire those covered donuts. Those are just as good. They mutually conflict with one another. Just because you desire God doesn't mean you won't stop desiring these other things as well. They're, they're, they're characteristics of repentance, but they're not repentance itself. So what is the act of repentance? Well, look at the very end. This is where we'll wrap up. He says, furthermore, both people and animals have to cover sackcloth. Everyone must call to earnestly God. But look, he said, each must what? turn from his evil's ways and from his wrongdoing. And who knows, maybe God might turn and relent from us. In verse 10, it says, God saw their actions, what happened, that they had turned from their evil ways, and God relented. 
The, the key word here used four times is turn. The, the Hebrew word for term right here, it has several meanings. It can mean to make a linear motion back to a point previously departed. It can mean to reject, like, like to disconnect or abandon an existing association. It literally can mean to turn and go in the opposite direction. To, to give you a visual is this. If I'm walking this way in life and doing this, to repent, to turn, is to stop and say, you know what? I don't want this. And to literally turn the other direction and start walking the other direction. That they're walking in a path of evil and say, listen, we can't keep doing this. Something has to change and turn and walk in the other way. And notice what they do. They turn from what? It says they're evil ways. Why are their evil ways need to be changed? Because in Jonah chapter 1 verse 2, he says, I've seen their evil. And they're going to be punished for it. The evils come up to them. Like God does not relent until they repent. I love the New American Commentary says this about this, to gain understanding. It says, it's interesting to note that all the deeds these Ninevites have done, that they fasted, they've worn sackcloth, they call to God. But the last thing they do is they turn from evil. Like only the last one that is mentioned is explicitly leading God to turn around as well. It's them turning from their way of life and saying, I'm going to stop this. I go back to my big idea is this. Repentance is a drastic turn in life. It's saying if you're living this direction, I'm going to do this, and I am keep living this sin. It means I can't keep walking the same way. Have you ever heard the definition of insanity? You've heard it before? It's doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. It's the same truth with all this. You can't walk in the same direction and expect to get to a different destination. It's never going to work. You're going to keep going down that same path. And so there has to be an explicit turning away, a turning away from sin, a turning towards God. You see the story of the prodigal son. He's in his sin. He's living his ways, and it says what? He came to his sense and says, I had it so good with my dad. And he gets up, and he leaves that life behind and walks back to his father. And he gets his father. He has this whole speech in his mind. Hey, dad, I'm bad. I'm messed up. I'll do this. I'll do this. He barely says, hey, dad, before his dad restores him. Why? Because it's just about coming back to God. And you can't come to God when you choose to still pursue those other things. It's turning from your way of life and say, listen, I'm going to quit. Like, don't want to say, listen, grace is freely given, but it's not freely received. For, for you to receive grace, you have to get rid of the stuff in your life that you want to make room for grace in your life. You have to come to a point and say, listen, I'm, I'm living in sin, doing this sort of thing, but if I want God, I'm going to have to let go of this and turn around and start walking in a different direction. I'm going to have to give this up. I've dropped nuggets in my story each week 10 years ago. What repentance looks like for me, listen, over and over again, I cried out to God, God, forgive me, would you stop? And listen, you know, I felt remorse, I felt guilt, but time and time again, I went back to the same thing. I desired God like I've never desired before. Can I tell you what? I desired those other things as well. They, they stayed there, they never left. It was immediate, man. I'd have a guy preach up there on the very sin I'm struggling with. I'd walk the aisle and I'd cry to someone and say, man, I want to change, I want to quit, I want to do this. But listen, my life never looked different. I kept walking the same direction, hoping for a different outcome. It never happened. It took 10 years ago when God slapped me in the face with grace and said, Eric, you need to wake up. And I had to make a change. I sat down with my wife. I said, if I keep walking this way, like, I'll never quit. And so we sat down together and I said, listen, I've got to get rid of these things in my life. They're, they're stumbling. I've got I to get rid of them. We put blockers on my phone. We got rid of movie collections that might be questionable for us. We put blockers on the TV where me and my one-year-old daughter have to ask permission of my wife to watch TV and stuff. And it's radical. It's like, man, I hate it. But can I tell you something? The Lord is so much more worth it. It was a radical change in my life to where he said, I don't want this stuff in my life anymore. I'm turning away from it. 
If I have to get rid of all of it, that's what it means. And for many of you, listen, the reality is for many of us, you've shown remorse, but you've never shown repentance. And repentance in the biblical concept is to stop what you're doing, to turn around and walk in the other direction. God can love you. God can chase you. God can make a fish swallow you and spit you back out. But until you repent and quit walking in that direction, listen, God cannot save you. You can elicit all the signs that look like repentance. But until you stop and say, I'm done. And say, God, would you take it? You know what the beauty is? No matter what it is, no question to ask, God takes it. Let me, let me take this off your plate. The reality is you're like the kid at a toy store trying to carry so much and carry one more. Man, if I could, just, if I could have all this and this one more thing, man, if I could just have this one more thing, and you can't carry it all. God won't play second to anything. It's all or none. And so for some of you, your, your, your repentance is maybe coming today and say, listen, I got, I got to change. It's one thing to walk an aisle and talk to myself, one of the elders, and say, what do I need to do? And we can help you. But the reality is, is whatever it is, you're going to need to go home and stop it. You might need to cut out friendships in your life that are causing you to do that. You may need to get rid of the TV. You might have to pray about a job change. You say, that's radical. Listen, you've got to pick. Do you want God or do you want this stuff? It's your pick. But you've got to choose. You can spend your life like I did years and years trying to juggle and say, maybe I can make these both work. They, they will never work together. See, repentance is a drastic it's a drastic turn in life. And so here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask if you just bow your heads and close your eyes and just allow the Lord to speak to you. I feel like a message like this, that nothing to do with my speaking or ability, just the topic alone has to stir in some hearts. It has to make you ask, man, God, am I, am I doing this? And maybe your first step towards repentance is coming confessing to one of the elders or someone and say, hey, listen, I, I need to do this today. Maybe you're a child of God and you're like the prodigal, you've ran away from the Lord. Listen, this is your opportunity to come back. God's grace is good. Maybe you never came to a point that you ever came and put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ. Today's your day to do it. We have Pete up here in the front. I think I'll ask JD will be in the back back there. If you want to go to the back and discreetly talk back there, we'd love nothing more than walk you through what it looks like. And so you respond today. You get up and you come. Don't be bashful. Don't be ashamed. Don't be scared. Don't, this, is, this, is, this is the Lord's work in your life. I love, I told you at the beginning that I love that song. We're going to sing again. I'm, I'm going to make room for you. That's an honest question you have to ask yourself today is, listen, will you make room for the Lord? Not share room. Like, will you clear the house for him? And say, God, I give it all to you. And so I'm going to pray. As I pray, if you feel led, you respond. But you be faithful. Father God, I love you. I thank you for conviction. I thank you for difficult words that we need to hear. God, help the people in this room, maybe they're guests first times, maybe they come in their whole life and they just feel like, man, this is what church is all about, to make us feel bad about ourselves. God, I hope, they, I hope they hear that's not what this is about. It's making room for the most beautiful thing in their life they will ever experience, and that's hope and joy in you and the salvation of Jesus Christ. It's understanding that you loved us so much that you, you gave your one only son to die on the cross for our sins so that we could quit living this cycle of life that we could never get out of. But you can't make us accept this gift. You just offered it. And God, I pray we would take it up today. 
God, thank you 10 years ago, man, getting a hold of my life and changing me. God, help me not to pretend like I'm perfect up here. I hope no one hears like, oh, Eric's got all this stuff together. I don't struggle and I still don't make mistakes. But God, I don't want to go back to that. God, I thank you. Every time I start to turn back, you remind me of who you are. I pray others would join. Father God, I love you. You are good. You are faithful. You're just. You never stop pursuing us. God, I pray today some would start pursuing you. Guide us into your will. Guide us into your word. Guide us into your arms. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we sing, I encourage you to move. If you need to come up, we'll be up here. So shake up the ground of all my tradition. Break down the 